Okay, so let's talk about rapamycin. I'm going to discuss first the case in big picture and then the details that are relevant, some of the conclusions to help us keep an eye for the big picture. So how is this novel what will be discussed? Number one, it's in probably the highest, highly documented case of a one-time bolus of serolimus or rapamycin taken by an individual. Um, when I say documented, I mean everything. Video recording of, the, of taking the pills to documenting day-by-day -day subjective experiences to a much, much more comprehensive lab work than has been done in any of the, the cancer dose response studies or in case reports. And the labs, moreover, were taken closely together because there has been a question in the literature, and this is one of the things that was hoped to be answered by this. And to be clear, this is a case of an individual, I'm calling N1, I'm not disclosing whom N1 is, except to say that the, the information can vouch for it being completely reliable. So there's been a lot of controversy regarding uh, cholesterol management and rapamycin. Is that a, a or uh, besides lipids, blood glucose? And we see these even within the mice models. It depends on what strain. It depends on what lab. Exactly what we see in the dosing regimen. And their dosing regimens are very different than human beings. So one question is, can human beings tolerate a very high dose, a dose so high that it takes so long for it to wash out that this is essentially like taking daily dosing at a high level because it takes so right. long for it to wash out above a threshold. Yeah, I think one, one comment I'll just make, I mean, you're absolutely right that the mouse studies are, are sometimes hard to interpret uh, as a whole, because of all of the variation in the way the drug was delivered and when it was delivered and strain background and diet. Um, but I think in general, you know, there's there's really two paradigms that people have used quite a bit in mice. One is the encapsulated rapamycin in the food. And there we actually tried to do a, a, a pretty comprehensive dose response study. And we found that the dietary delivery in the e-rapa, that's what it's typically called, um, the, just the uptake of the drug saturates pretty quickly. So, you know, I think the highest, the interventions testing program tested was 42 parts per million in the diet. We went up well over, I don't, we went way above 128 at least. Um, but it pretty quickly started to saturate. So I'd be interested as we go into this, you know, what you know about the highest peak value of rapamycin. And then the other paradigm though, is, is IP injection and, and my lab, you know, when we start first started working in this mitochondrial mouse model, um, you know, it's probably 15 years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. The Lee syndrome model. Um, we were doing eight MIGs per kg per day by IP injection. And there you get much higher circulating levels of rapamycin because you don't have to go through the uptake in the small intestine and, and that route of delivery. And so again, it would be interesting to compare sort of the, the peak values and the washout, you know, kinetics from those experiments to to this particular case report. I, I've read all, all of your work uh, regarding that um, and probably close to all of your public, your major publications. Uh, and um, we'll be, we can go back and forth, iterate between the two. 
but the doses you went up to were at least ninefold higher than the 42 parts per million. That was okay. the highest. <laughs> you, you remember my work better than I do, which, you know. <laughs> well, you were able to, you're able to say equivalent because you gave it in two forms. You gave it IP yeah. and what you found is it averages about the same, but there's a key difference. The, it, it peaks, it peaks faster and then it, it goes right. down. And there's some, there's an interesting literature to think about intermittent dosing, because we talk about what really matters for efficacy, and we're really pretty clueless. There's some data to suggest, uh, for example, coming out of Dudley Lamming's lab, he did IP for where every five days he gave IP and he could demonstrate a life extension. That that was actually a little bit complicated by uh, a dermatitis that a subset of the mice developed. Uh, but whether you excluded the group that were euthanized due to the dermatitis or not, which disproportionately affected the uh, Everolimus group, uh, you yeah. still saw life extension. But what we did not have in that study was a control to look at how same averages, we don't have a lot of cross comparison to that. In fact, yeah. the closest thing we have to cross comparison to that would suggest that at least in some settings, uh, frequency does matter. You were co-author, I believe, on this one, where you did IP injection daily versus every other day. And yeah. it was dramatic, the difference. The one that was every other day, it had a survival curve more closely recapitulating that of the controls than the, the, excuse me, the every other day. Yeah. Versus the one that was every day IP was way out of the, uh, out of the, statistically significant from both of them if you took the average. Yes, that's true. Although if it's the study that I recall, that was probably in the mitochondrial disease model. So there's all sorts of variables here that are that complicated. Here's, here's kind of, you know, the way that I would sum it up, which is that the interesting thing about rapamycin is that it appears you can extend lifespan in mice, in let's just say wild type mice, let's not worry about the disease models right now, in wild type mice, in at least a few different genetic backgrounds using many different delivery strategies, including IP injection, in the diet, intermittent, continuous, starting early in life, starting late in life, transient late in life, you can get lifespan extension from all of those different ways of delivering the drug. What we don't have is any yet is any careful comparison where it's controlled well to say which of those is most effective. And, you know, and I think we even have to specify what we mean by most effective. Lifespan is probably the easiest thing to think about, but, you know, obviously we're interested in health span metrics as well. And those things, lifespan and health span metrics will probably generally correlate but they might not in certain cases. And, and what I mean by that is there may be a dose or delivery strategy of rapamycin that's optimal for immune function that's going to be different than what's optimal for lifespan or for heart function or for cognitive function. We don't have yet any careful controlled comparison of different doses, different delivery regimens for rapamycin, even in mice, which makes the human data even harder to interpret because the human data is, data is all over the place in terms of what people are doing. So this is just the limitations of the, the data that we have at hand. And I, I say all this so that people can hopefully understand you know, why I think, why I try to be cautious and why I think we should try to be cautious not to over-interpret some of these comparisons that, that can be done, but really aren't very well controlled. Um, so we, we just have to recognize the limitations of the data. But having said that, it's still pretty important that all of these 
all of these different ways and doses and strategies people have taken, you can <laughs> increase lifespan and improve health span metrics in mice with all of them. We just don't know what's best at this point. I, I agree 100%. And in a way, you're reinstating my point. The point I make isn't that that's translatable. I mean, there at so many different levels, like uh, these intermittent dosing ones are not necessarily translatable. For example, there was a study by uh, Inosimov, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, yeah. but his was a particular uh, strain of mice that was particularly cancer prone. It was like two weeks on, two weeks off. That's not the same thing as IP, less the file PO every five days injection, uh, or your mitochondrial one, or ITP had a, re a relatively more recent uh, rapamycin study where they looked at three different scenarios. They did. They started uh, at a later age and they asked, what if we deliver it for uh, a short period of time for a few months and then stop? What if we deliver it, um, you know, every other month? But it's not like it's one dose every other yeah. month. No, it's like one month on, one month off, one month on, right. one month off. And that introduces other variables, because when we're talking about intermittent rapamycin, it can mean so many different things. Intermittent can be how often it is given. Intermittent yeah. can also be how long it stays, how high. For example, does do you need to have a dose of rapamycin above a given threshold for a certain period of time for it to have more of an effect? Uh, so there are all these variables outside of people fixate on the allometric conversion, which is not, you know, we, we yeah. function differently. Our receptors are in tune. Our uh, mTOR pathway is wired differently. We're optimized towards longevity. Maybe it won't extend human life, but maybe it will extend our health span in ways that are remarkable. I think, I think the way I'd sum it up is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's important to keep all these things in mind, but it's really easy to get get lost in the get, in this forest for the trees idea, right? Because there's so many different parameters at, at play. Since you brought up the Anisimov study, though, just just as a little teaser, we're going to get a little bit in the weeds, but I think I think the audience will like it. One of the reasons you know that I mentioned why rapamycin is exciting is because it seems, unlike other interventions generally in this space, to be more robust across genetic backgrounds. And I think this Anisimov strain you mentioned is kind of illustrative of that. So this is a cancer-prone strain. I don't remember off the top of my head the letter designation, but um, it's a cancer-prone strain, relatively short-lived. This is the strain that Anisimov, I think it was back in the 90s, published that, or maybe it was early 2000s, that metformin had a very large effect on lifespan. Um, but we all know now that when you take metformin and you test it in C57 black six, that effect is tiny. And in fact, it becomes toxic at, at higher doses. And when you move to UMHET3, which is what the ITP uses, there's no effect of metformin. Now you compare that to rapamycin, which works robustly in all of those genetic backgrounds. So I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, I, I, I've said rapamycin is the gold standard for longevity at least pharmacological longevity interventions. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that's the case. It works robustly across multiple genetic backgrounds, many, many different labs, highly reproducible. Um, and that is in contrast to most of the other interventions in this field. And particularly metformin is a great example because people are super excited about metformin for, for good reason, I think. there's. I'm not saying that, I'm not trying to bash metformin. I'm just trying to do a, a, a clear comparison here between metformin and rapamycin, at least in the preclinical studies in mice. 
Matt, I, I, I agree with your, your general points. I'm assuming that the audience listening to this are sufficiently sophisticated that they are able to, they know the literature that rapamycin's effect uh, size is much greater than metformin for the uh, vertebrate organisms in the subset where it's been demonstrated and that the uh, metformin data has not been reproducible in animal in, in all animal models, and notably in the interventions testing program, when they tested it by itself, it did not yeah. extend life. I want to just make a couple of his counterpoints <laughs> here. One of them is that, well, at some of the centers it did, and if that other center, it, you know, that could have been a chance event or it could have been uh, bad luck. And another point near my uh, makes is that that something w doesn't work in. In, in animal models doesn't mean it doesn't work in people and we have data in people. And then there's the controversy whether in, in the human epidemiology, especially with two more recent studies, uh, whether that's a fair com uh, comparison with better controls, the uh, diabetics don't live longer than the healthy uh, controls. Yeah. They just live healthier than yeah. diabetics who aren't on metformin. Like I uh, said, I'm, I'm not trying to bash metformin. I would say is I want to be careful to not to I wouldn't say that metformin hasn't been reproducible because it's in different strain backgrounds, right? So again, the ITP is in a different strain background than, than C57 black six or the Anisimov strain. So, and I just want to be careful because oftentimes when people say it's not reproducible, that means that two labs tried to do the same experiment and they got different answers. That isn't really the case with metformin. It's more that metformin isn't consistent in its longevity effects across different genetic backgrounds. Now, to your point about, you know, at two of the ITP sites, there might've been an effect and at the third one, there wasn't, and maybe it has effects in people, maybe it doesn't, there's some controversy there. That's all true. Um, you know, again, from my perspective, I'm interested in things that work, work robustly and work all the time where we don't have to wave our hands and say, maybe this, maybe that. Um, so I, I, I think there's reason to believe that metformin certainly is a valuable anti-diabetic drug. Nobody's going to argue with that. And it might have effects on other age-related diseases. That is non-obvious given the sum total of data that we've got right now in either mice or people. And I think if we're going to be honest about the situation, that's the situation. We don't know. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. I'm a fan for diversity. I think my <laughs> tweets speak for themselves. If you look at the percentage of my tweets that deal with uh, whether it's rapamycin or rapalogs versus metformin, but uh, <laughs> I will, I, I, but nevertheless, I, I believe that each, each candidate, whether it's AKG, alpha-ketoglutarate, spermidine, or any boosters in various forms, not just NMN and NR, but sirtuin, um, activating compounds. Each of them has pros and cons in terms of potential applications. And what each of them shares most in common with the rest is enormous unknowns. And what rapamycin has going for it when we're comparing it in relative terms to what's out there is, uh, number one, the effect size. Number two, a billion years of conserved evolution. Re reproducible. Of, uh... I think metformin has been a number. <laughs> like it's hard to find models. I'm not saying they don't exist. Uh, we debate those fine points. I do believe they, they exist even in C. elegant, but it's a little bit like a caloric restriction type of argument. If one third of CR models uh, shorten life, 
And I would argue many, not necessarily all, many of those that just genetically, they, they, they're they not optimized at that level of caloric restriction, maybe. Sure, that, that's probably that. its own podcast. But, but to at the same into that. time, rapamycin <laughs> has such a wide therapeutic index. I mean, when we look at metformin, especially for uh, some of these simpler model organisms, you a little bit higher, <laughs> shorter mortality, a little bit lower. So we, uh, he, He's not going to stop barking right, until you right. stop talking about I mean, talking if Neil Barzley was here to say, but yes, look at the, <laughs> if Neil Barzley was here, say, yes, but look at the safety profile and it doesn't cause me to suppress. So like I'm saying, everything well, we can, So look, now wait a minute. We're, look, no, wait, that, we're gonna get that's not even clear. Rafa. We're going to get to the good safety. We haven't gotten to these case reports yet. And these are going to be pro, very pro safety, at least on the acute sense. No, I mean metformin, right? Oh, this is another yeah, question, yeah. right? So yes. look, I, again, I get it. Everybody's got their I'm own even, opinions, but I just feel like it, it's not. Two max is, and, <laughs> I don't. I feel like it's not particularly valuable to the field to pretend like all of these things are equal and, and have their own pros and cons. Like, I think we should actually look at the data and try to have a reasonable discussion. Now, I get it. Everybody can look at the data and arrive at a different opinion. That That's fine. But I think when we don't look at the data and we just say, oh yeah, all of these things have pros and, pros and cons and they're all valuable, I'm not sure that's true. And I actually think that it is potentially a disservice to the community to act like that's the case, right? These things all have different data sets supporting or refuting them. And if we don't actually talk about the meat of the data, um, then then that's how people get the perception that, you know, sirtuin activators are great. There's really no data to support that idea, right? There's, there's none that I'm aware of, but it gets to be a big perception in the field that that's the case. And, and that tends to, to, to cause resources to be allocated to areas that are not valuable, in my opinion. So I think we, I think that I have a little bit of a, of a problem with the idea that we should all just act like like all of this information is equal when when the data supporting it isn't. You're absolutely right we, that we do need to prioritize resources. Now, without having us go down this rabbit hole, I do believe that there there is some data suggestive for stacks in terms of its potential for translation. I'm not saying in human studies that shows li you know lifespan extension it's for you know sirtuins, I assume the audience is familiar with that. And epigenetic uh, reprogramming, every sure. area we can dis we can discuss pros and cons, but your the point is, while we can spend a lot of time uh, counting angels dancing on the head of a needle about all the pros and cons, uh, like epigenetic reprogramming, I think that's tremendously exciting. I think it needs to prove itself more at the organismal level as opposed to cellular. We do have some in some models, including now, not just genetic interventions, but ones in, in, in living organisms with uh, that you can extend lifespan, but nothing like rapamycin, right? So does that mean we shouldn't invest in these other areas? No, I would encourage diversity and a competitive spirit where different labs specialize. But what you're getting at is ultimately the payers like NIH and so forth or investors, they need to decide where to put their dollars in. So the focus- Well, of, I, I would also say it, it goes beyond that. I would even say at the level of trainees, graduate students. So here's, here's a case example from my own sort of history, right? Let's look at resveratrol, okay? You know, this this was a molecule that was popularized as a longevity sort of miracle drug 
right? And it's a great story, right? Something found in red wine. Drink all the red wine you want and you will live longer. Meta-analyses, I'm not even going to get into the science of how, yes. you know, was resveratrol a sirtuin activator or not? Is it ever, you know, that's that's a whole different story. But we now know today after, so this is now 20 years on from the first resveratrol longevity paper, two decades, okay? Meta-analysis of all the published longevity experiments with, with resveratrol, the median effect is zero on lifespan, zero. I think there has never been a more debunked longevity molecule that's not a longevity molecule. How many postdoc graduate student careers were wasted following that trail when I think most of us who were paying any attention knew within five years that there was nothing there? Um, so I think that these sorts of you know failure to actually look at the data and allowing these, you know, stories to get spread broadly amongst the field because people aren't actually talking about the real data can do a lot of harm. That's not even to, to mention the fact of, you know, how much, how many people have wasted, I don't know how much money on resveratrol supplements as longevity supplements. Now, I'm not saying resveratrol can't have some benefits for some people. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but it's not a longevity drug. Like, I think that is clear. And I don't think there's ever been anything tested as many times in longevity experiments and the net effect is zero. I, I think resveratrol is a great example of how a massive amount of resources, including human capital, can be wasted on something that, that was clear to the people paying attention that, that that wasn't real. The intelligent observer will note that at no point in this discussion did I bring up resveratrol. I brought up some <laughs> other modalities. The and other R word, yeah. Perhaps the <laughs> tactical in, in nature, when I think about making impact in the field and when I see my role, Matt, like what, what is my potential to do good? I have followers who have many belief systems. And when I wear the hat of aging doc one, it is the hat of here's a central place where people can learn and people more in the know can educate their followers to sift the, the data. And also where there can be healthy debates where there are areas of legitimate controversy and in different interpretations of the data. That's yeah. a very different matter than having total equanimity and equal, everything is equal. We need to have clear priorities. My own belief, Matt, in terms of priorities is we need two basic types of targets. We need short-term, relatively low-hanging fruit for things that have been established and validated and have the greatest chance for translating in human beings. And where do I rank Rapalogs on a scale from one to 10? About a 55. It's, it is the, it is not just the as a class, like mTOR inhibitors, I put with that dual kinase inhibitors and other permutations of that, which I would love to see head-to-head -head comparisons of those. We don't even have good lifespan studies for these. We're, the, the research is so basic. Um, yeah, let's come back to that. That 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 the million molecule challenge can solve. Yeah, well, that. We'll, we'll go back to that. We haven't even done the case reports, Matt. These case <laughs> reports, everybody's like, how everybody's like, how high dose? Or is he saying it's like this is record breaking, at least record breaking in terms of because people make claims and people sort of they take their powder compounded, they don't know what they're having. Uh, what I have is actual uh, data with actual blood work. Uh, showing serolimus level and so forth. So we're going to- All right, let's dive, dive into right it. Back to that. We got, we but, got off but, on a tangent, but, uh, my fault. No, no worries, no <laughs> worries. This is all like, didn't I say fun is priority one? 
and and right up there is the audience having fun with us. It's like you're we're letting you went to our dinner table conversation between uh, me and I guess I can say my name since I won't release this afterwards. Me, David Barzilai, <laughs> near Barzilai's like what? <laughs> yes. Yeah. If you combine David Sinclair, no wonder you were defending Metformin. You have David Barzilai, <laughs> David Sinclair, near Bars. Anyway, so. I want to use my my infra, my knowledge to do more than just what we're doing now. What we're doing now is this is a space where I can bring in thought leaders like yourself. And I see myself as a kind of thought leader myself, but on a very selected basis. I'm very specific when I decide benefits exceed risk to the community and to the ramifications for the whole field's development when I speak up because I don't have a product to sell. And I, I, what I want to do is to sell progress for the field. And what can I? And, and I feel the way I can do that maximally is by having a, a positive uh, relationship with a very diverse set of individuals, and to be a reasonable person, to be exceedingly reasonable and very open-minded in a way that is transparent and has high integrity like if I, if I think something's a load of crap and I'm you know and and it's a context where I should where I should speak up I will you know but um, so it's within that context where um, focusing our discussion where I'd like to bring in all the stakeholders and optimize our whole ecosystem each of us and I believe by the way everybody in our ecosystem every single soul, wants to do good and does good the way they believe it and say it, including people who, we're going to go to this later. I'm just giving a little alluding to this, Matt, and then we'll get back on track. It's There are different ways to talk about the future of the field and to make projections about how far the field can go. So, for example, I would say there is the Matt Caberline School of Thought, and there is, uh, just taking another example, there's the Aubrey de Grey School of Thought. And the schools of thoughts, I, I, I don't know if I could say they're quite matter and antimatter, but they're pretty diametrically opposed. They're close. Uh, and I, I, believe, I, I actually I, I don't I, believe that's everything not, is a That's wash. not the case. There's, there's a reality. That's not the case. Aubrey and I probably agree on 80 to 90% of, uh, you know, our our perspectives on the field um so anyways i let's get it let's get into that later but but okay. i actually think Aubrey uh, and by I the way my, close. i would say the more the more we the the more we move to infinity of, of, of humanity if humanity survives we don't kill each other the closer the visions you know and i am somewhere along that continuum i believe as long you know because we're going to get better and better ai and ml but in terms of being projections i'm gonna have people i invite discuss that and give their best case and i will press them for their best case because i want them this is their place and this will be your place for the million molecule challenge so um do i have your permission matt for the uh, case report did you have anything else absolutely I'm, I'm i can't wait let's do it okay like I, I wish I, in some ways, I, I wish I wasn't as deep as I was in the literature because then I would have less to say, and this would be an easier interview, <laughs> easier interview for you. But I'm certainly having fun. I, I, I hope you are too. Um, so this is the case, okay?